thanks for coming. My name is Nathaniel Rich, and on behalf of the 3,400 writers, translators, and editors of Penn, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the 7th Annual Penn World Voices Festival of International Literature. I'd like to take a moment to thank the festival sponsors and supporters, without whose generosity none of this would be possible, as well as The Standard, New York, and The Highline, which are serving as the festival's hubs this year. I'd also like to thank the more than 130 volunteers helping out uh, throughout the festival. Books will be available after the event, uh, and the writers will linger uh, to, to talk or sign books. Unfortunately, we don't have Richard Campanella's The Engels Dilemma here, but I urge uh, anybody with an interest in New Orleans to buy it. It's, it's a truly fantastic uh, survey of the city's history and uh, geographical history. Um, and please turn off your machines. To tell you. And we're going to have a discussion followed by uh, a Q&A uh, where you'll be able to ask questions. And, uh, but before we start, I've asked each of the writers here to read uh, briefly from something they've written about uh, New Orleans. And uh, why don't we go alphabetically? Oh, I'm sorry. Let me introduce the, uh, the, 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 the panelists here. Um, Sarah Broom. A native New Orleanian is a graduate of Berkeley Journalism School and has served as a writer and editor, contributing to such publications as Oh, the Oprah Magazine, Time Asia, the New York Times Magazine, the Times Picayune, and the Oxford American. And she has held the position of senior writer for the mayor of New Orleans. Richard Campanella is a geographer at Tulane University and the author of six critically acclaimed books on the physical and human geography of New Orleans, including Bienville's Dilemma, Geographies of New Orleans, and the recently released Lincoln in New Orleans. Um, Nicholas Lemon is a writer and the dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. He's published five books, including Redemption, The Last Battle of the Civil War, and The Promised Land, The Great Black Migration, and How It Changed America. A staff writer for The New Yorker, he's also written for The New York Times, The New York Review of Books. He's named a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in April 2010. Uh, Fatima Sheikh, native of New Orleans, is the author of four books of fiction set in Louisiana, including Three for Children. She's a former reporter for the New Orleans Times-Picayune, assistant editor for McGraw-Hill World News. She's published in the Southern Review, Callaloo, the New York Times, and Essence, among other publications. And Billy Southern is a writer and criminal defense lawyer based in New Orleans, Louisiana, where he's represented men facing the death penalty for the past decade. He's a frequent contributor to The Nation and Salon, and is the author of Down in New Orleans, Reflections from a Drowned City. So why don't we uh, start the, the readings with Sarah. Great. Should I go there? Um, you can see. Whichever seat right, you I'm best. happy here. Okay. Hello, everyone. So I'm going to read uh, a short piece from an article I, I wrote a few years ago that was published in the Oxford American. It's called Letting Her Go. I am again leaving New Orleans. The city that has for nearly all my life been my excuse and explanation for most everything I've done, especially those things <coughs> crooked and backwards. This is the city of my mother, Ivory Mae Soule, and of her mother and of everyone before then, as far back as I know. The first time I left, I was 17 years old, and I did so with the half-hearted notion that the city of New Orleans consisted of the French Quarter as its nucleus, and then all else. All else would have included me and my 11 siblings who lived in New Orleans East, 
off Sheffmenter Highway, where every day speeding cars flew out of town. It was on the same highway that one of those fast-growing cars dragged my older sister Karen by the tail of her shirt for several feet before noticing it. All I really mean to say here is that when I was 17 and leaving New Orleans, I had the mind of a tourist, or I was a tourist in my own city. The times I visited the French Quarter during my growing up years were purposeful and specific. I went there either to drop off my chef brother Michael at K. Paul's Louisiana Kitchen on Charter Street, or was to get myself to my barista job at Community Coffee on Royal. On special occasions, though I cannot now recall what those might have been, members of the Broom Clan would go into town, as my mother calls the quarter and its surrounding areas, to eat beignets or shop the flea market at the end of Decatur. Never once during my growing up years did I lay my head down for sleep anywhere in the vicinity of those quarters, and that included uptown, downtown, or back of town. I do not say this out of regret or longing, I'm only describing what the universe looked like to me back then. When I returned to the city with the intention of living here for a long while, it was January 2008, and I was staying in Le Pavillon on Poitras Street. I was interviewing for a speechwriter job in the mayor's office a few blocks down the street. Le Pavillon's a white, majestic building with archangels the size of ancient pillars out front. One night during my stay at Le Pavillon, which was built in 1907, and whose website describes it as a kind of place where guests can instantly conjure up the days of genteel luxury, romantic evenings, and glittering nights, someone shot off four gunshots outside my door while I sat in bed watching HBO. For a moment, I sat confused about where I was. I had just returned from war-torn Burundi, where civil war was always on the horizon, but I was no longer there. No, this was the fifth floor of a luxury hotel in New Orleans. I dropped down to the floor where I tried to squeeze myself underneath the mattress. I stayed there and peered through the crack beneath the door as the sound of chaos broke out. First someone was cursing, and then as time wore on, the sound was of police officers on walkie-talkies. When I opened the door many minutes later, a man and his daughter were sprinting toward the exit, a green plastic suitcase in hand. In the morning, I noticed the glass next to the elevators was shattered, but other than that, there was no sign. There was also no mention of what happened in the newspaper or on the TV. When I mentioned the shootout on the fifth floor to the manager the next morning, she tried shushing me and then offered me a continental breakfast on the house, <laughs> which I declined. I took the job and moved into a pink camelback shotgun house near Oak Street, uptown. This street represents many of the city's contradictions. On Oak Street, there is the fanciest snowball stand I have ever seen, which accepts credit cards with a minimum $5 purchase. To either side of my camelback shotgun are dilapidated houses that have not been fixed since the storm, but where people still live. Across the street from me are three generations living in a three-bedroom house. It occurs to me, as someone who loves New Orleans, but has left it and returned to it, as I have, after many years in continents, that this conundrum of belonging to a place you do not actually feel belongs to you will be my burden for a very long time.
Okay, I'm going to read the concluding essay from Bienville's Dilemma, Historical Geography of New Orleans. By the way, this, uh, I wrote this in early 2008, this particular piece. Interpreters of New Orleans history generally fall into two camps. Both have come to understand play relevant roles in the city's future. The exceptionalists see in New Orleans an enduring uniqueness dating back to its colonial origins and very much alive today. While they allow that some distinctiveness has disappeared, the French language, for example, exceptionalists view modern New Orleans as a place with its heart still in the Franco-Afro-Caribbean world from which it spawned, resigned only reluctantly to its American fate. This group sees evidence for New Orleans' uniqueness in everything from music and food to attitudes, race relations, linguistics, architecture, and politics. Exceptionalism is practically an article of faith among most New Orleans aficionados and city advocates, including many lifelong local historical researchers and writers. It forms the bedrock of local civic pride, and merely questioning it can earn responses of consternation and reproach. Exceptionalist predisposition towards perceiving distinctiveness in all things related to New Orleans continually reinforces their stance that the city is axiomatically too generous. Nonsense, say the assimilationists, also known as the Americanists. This camp argues that two centuries of American dominion have enveloped New Orleans almost entirely into the national fold, leaving only vestiges of distinction in such realms as historical architecture, civic rituals such as Mardi Gras and Second Line parades, and in a smattering of linguistic and culinary traits. They point out that modern-day New Orleanians in overwhelming numbers speak English, indulge in national pop culture, surf the internet, shop at big box chains, and interact socially and economically with other Americans and the world on a daily basis. Assimilationists view the exceptionalist insistence of cultural uniqueness as an appealing mantra drummed up first by local color writers in the late 1800s and today by the industrial tourism machine. Wherever the truth lies, one thing is certain. The prevailing narrative about New Orleans communicated worldwide after Hurricane Katrina was that of the exceptionalists, and we should all be grateful for that. Their uniqueness mantra may well have saved the city. Allusions to cultural distinction played critical roles in persuading the nation to invest taxpayer dollars in a, in a place threatened with eroding coasts, sinking soils, rising seas, and increasingly intense storms. If New Orleans were, were perceived as interchangeable with any other American city, the pragmatic response of metropolitan abandonment might have won the day. But the task of actually saving the city puts the exceptionalists in a philosophical dilemma, because the factors that they claim rendered New Orleans distinctive and charming also seem to have made it parochial, inefficient, and dangerous. <laughs> this logical disconnect appeal, appears to be lost on many people. I've listened to countless speakers and panelists at post-Katrina conferences who commenced their presentations with emotional tributes to New Orleans' cultural uniqueness, heterogeneity, and quirky independence, only to, to conclude them with strident calls for standardization, homogenization, and efficiency. Can we really have it both ways? Noble efforts to adopt national green architecture standards, build sustainable communities, unify parochial levy boards, consolidate rival port authorities, eliminate redundant tax assessors, a system unique in the nation, by the way, merge civil and criminal courts, one of the few with separate systems, to dispense with the state's insurance regulatory panel, the only one in the country, and even to ban cockfighting, the last state in the union to do so, are in fact outright, outright rejections of exceptionalism in favor of national assimilation, even though most advocates of such measures purport to embrace the former and disdain the latter. I grappled with this dilemma, sensing that a thoughtful person simply cannot pull on this one rope in two directions. 
But eventually I, I began to appreciate that both interpretations, regardless of their historical accuracy, have played important complementary roles in the city's recovery. The exceptionalist interpretation helped persuade the nation in, to invest in rebuilding New Orleans by rightfully, rightfully portraying the city as an irreplaceable treasure. The assimilationist interpretation will guide actually saving it by rightfully addressing the problems of inefficiency, parochialism, and unsustainability, which, if left unchecked, would eventually destroy it. May all New Orleans dilemmas end as judiciously. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm going to read a, a little snip from this book, Redemption, which is about uh, Reconstruction and a set of incidents within Reconstruction in Louisiana and mostly Mississippi, uh, mostly in 1873, 1874, 1875. It's a little hard to read from, so I'm going to pick a part that stands alone because People don't know this history, but uh, it, in my view, at least, maybe we'll get to return to this, this kind of underlies um, a lot of what happens even today. Um, in 1873, on Easter Sunday, uh, there occurred uh, what Eric Foner calls the most bloody single incident during Reconstruction, which is saying a lot, um, and it was called the uh, Colfax Massacre. Um, in a town called Colfax, Louisiana, on the Red River, north of Alexandria. So this is uh, just a little background um, to that. A distance up the Red River from Colfax in northwestern Louisiana lived a remarkable former slave and army veteran named Henry Adams, who managed to pull off the un almost unimaginably difficult feat of organizing a committee of 500 Negroes to travel through the former Confederacy and as he put it a few years later, look into affairs and see the true condition of our race. During the years immediately following the Civil War, the committee's investigators went on to every state in the South and compiled a record which is deadpan in tone to the point of being stenographic and all the more powerful for that of violence done to Negroes, a statement of specific cases of outrage, every one of which went unpunished. For the 10 years after the end of the Civil War, just in the upper Red River parishes of Louisiana, Adams's list contains the names of 683 victims. A typical section goes this way. 220th, Sam Mayberry, whipped near to death by Lord Hill and Henry Smith, white men. He afterward died from the effects of the beating. This was in Mansfield in December 1865. Several other white men helped to beat him. 221st, a young colored man was killed on John McMillan's place by a colored man in 1873. 222nd, Henry West, badly whipped by Butler Williams in or near Mansfield, November 2nd, 1874, and since near beat him to death. 223rd, an old man, colored, was killed by Herschel, a white man, about cotton, while on their way to Shreveport in the road, 1866. 224th, George, a colored man, killed on John McMillan's place by white man, 1873. 225th, Nancy Brooks, badly whipped by Davis, a white man, on Hammond Scott's place in 1873. In 1875, General Philip Sheridan, the great Union cavalryman of the Civil War, was sent to Louisiana by President Grant to try to restore order. 
He made a careful investigation and reported that since the end of the war, 2,141 Negroes had been killed by whites in Louisiana and 2,115 wounded. All these crimes, again, going unpunished. Henry Adams and his committee, concluding that the freed slaves could not safely live among their former masters, formed a colonization council and wrote to President Grant asking them to be given land where they could settle and live in peace by themselves. The anti-Negro violence was an expression of racial hatred intertwined with and intensified by political conflict. Adams later testified before a U.S. Senate committee in this way. Now, in a great many parts of that country, there are people most as well be slaves as to be free. Because in the first place, I will state this, that in some times, in times of politics, if they have any idea that the Republicans will carry a parish or ward or something of that kind, why they would do anything on God's earth, there ain't nothing too mean for them to do to prevent it. Nothing I can make mention of is too mean for them to do. If I'm working on his place and he's been laughing and talking with me, and I do everything he tells me to, yet in time of election he will crush me down or even kill me or do anything to me to carry his point. If he can't carry his point without killing me, he will kill me. But if he can carry his point without killing me, he will do that. Hi. Um, I'm going to read to you a little bit from a, a piece that I've been working on. I was working on a historical memoir that started in 1836. Um, and came up into my community until 1997, but then when Katrina came, I had to do some revision. So what I'm going to try to read to you right now uh, is a part of the memoir, because I think that is the most accessible, to tell you about New Orleans natives. So uh, this is reflecting back on the neighborhood in downtown. So, sitting on my father's steps, I recall when I was a child and an adolescent. I knew the people downtown, their homes, and their porches intimately. The shotgun house had rooms that went straight back, one behind the other. First was a living room, then a dining room or bedroom, depending on the number of children, then a bathroom, a bedroom, and a kitchen. I bolted many times with my classmates after school through these family houses, only to be slowed and shushed not to wake a father sleeping in the second room, lying crossways on the bed, exhausted from his job at night. Or sometimes I sat knees together on the plastic-covered sofa while being served iced tea and cookies as I waited for a double-date friend to go to a fancy dance. She arrived like a wedding cake, layers of ruffles and sequins threaded in the center with tiny seed pearls. Her family stood together at the screen door when we exited. Or sometimes in the back of a shotgun house, I sat at a four-mica kitchen table and ate hot fried chicken on thick plastic plates with a pitcher of lemonade in front of me, and the rear door opened to create a breeze. I laughed as loud as the others over the buzz of the window fan. Builders, now streaming into New Orleans, pronounce that the style of the shotgun house emerged from the 1840s to the 1890s, but that doesn't begin to explain. The men who built these shotgun houses took in everyone. There were many shotguns empty after Katrina, with just a few gutted after the storm. Most lay vacant. The residents were big families, many with ties undocumented in City Hall. They were bound by the heart, which is now in pieces. The hurricane scattered them. Not long after Katrina, the Louis Armstrong Airport was full of strangers. 
going from and coming to New Orleans for the first time. I heard sharp southern accents and crisp northern sentences. They were generally happy to be doing something good and to be efficient at it. They had reasonable plans with futuristic rationales. We all hope they don't do us in. They think that we should hate being surrounded by water, but they've never waded into the lake. They should taste its salty waves and step on the muddy shell bottom at the old colored beach near the intercoastal canal. They should swim in it a little to know its warmth and buoyancy. They should learn the names of the fish in the lake that come up to the shore and do not swim away. Mullet, drum, crab, and catfish make this lake shore unlike the shores of Virginia, New York, South Africa. In high school, we sat like birds on a wall watching the tide. It came in every evening bringing the moon with it. More people flocked to the seawall as the evening wore on, listening to the sounds of waves and fanning away the buzzing mosquitoes. This gave way to the sounds of laughter and then whispering. Couples sat in their cars talking about the dreams that the lake conjured, houses and families evoked by the outlines of dark clouds catching the moonlight. Friends talked quietly about the future, knowing there would always be New Orleans to return to, no matter who they'd become. For lovers who would never leave, there would only be New Orleans for them and their children. So for us, rebuilding means repairing our feelings and remembering our true natures, close to the land and to each other. When I returned to my father's house after Katrina, everything was brown. The grass and the steps were covered with sludge. The magnolia and bay leaf trees that had sat in water for so many weeks had died at the root. But months later, the crepe myrtles had returned to my father's street, and so had the camellias. And a plant called Four O'Clocks was growing secretly under the thick mud from one yam-like root ball to another. A year after the storm, these plants erupted with profusion of blossoms under the dank houses, in the unkept gardens, and by rotten sheds. Some flowers were yellow, other flowers were pink. Some bushes had two different colors on the same stalk. Some flowers came modeled in two colors. They were the survivors, adapting mongrel blossoms that landscapers no longer had the energy to kill. These flowers open only after the sun goes down. They evolve slowly and usually without recognition. Their scent announces their presence. People returning home catch the perfume when they climb up the steps to their front doors. We know that the juice of the four o'clock flowers can bring back the hummingbirds. I listened for the manic beating of wings when I sat on my father's porch in the twilight. It is still quiet, only now. Finally, Billy Southern. Um, when Maria is the final chapter of my book, Down in New Orleans, it was actually written, um, I wrote it, I don't know, <clears throat> after uh, something had happened, and I wrote it very quickly, and it ended up being published uh, as an op-ed in the New York Times, and I didn't think it was going to be in the book, but it was sort of tacked on to the end, um, because I feel like it summed up so much of what I was trying to accomplish with the book. <clears throat> In one 24-hour period in January 2007 in New Orleans, a small city of 200,000 residents, six people were murdered. The previous year's total of 161 murders had made New Orleans the deadliest city in the United States by a significant margin. I suppose it was only a matter of time before the violence touched my life directly. As I worked on my computer in the late morning one day of that month, I received a call from my friend Kitty. She asked sharply, where are you? 
I'm at home, I responded. I have awful news, she said. And then very quickly, someone broke into Paul and Helen's house. Helen was shot and killed. Paul was holding baby Francis and was shot three times. He's still alive. Francis is okay. Paul gave Lunas, Dr. Paul I call him, had been my physician for several years at the Little Doctors Clinic, a health center for poor people that he founded in Treme, one of America's oldest black neighborhoods. I started to see Paul after my previous doctor mocked one of my colleagues about our work representing people on Louisiana's death row. When I met Paul through a friend, I asked him directly, are you in favor of the death penalty? He responded with a smile, hey, I'm Canadian, clearly feeling that was answer enough. And it was, coming from the founder of our local chapter of Food Not Bombs and the front man for the Troublemakers, a band whose songs celebrated Emma Goldman with, and the idea of universal health care in such a lighthearted tone that it would scarcely have alienated the most ardent conservative. Helen Hill was Paul's perfect match. She was ceaselessly kind and generous. She had long ago forsaken even dairy products because producing them involved potential cruelty to animals, and she made an award-winning experimental animated films while teaching art and filmmaking to kids, adults, anyone who was interested. She spent much of the previous year restoring reels of six millimeter film on which she had drawn by hand, which had been damaged when their house took four feet of water during Hurricane Katrina. She had a new film underway, inspired by discarded hand-sewn dresses made by an elderly New Orleanian, which Helen had found in the trash after the woman's death. The film interwove the story of the old woman and her dresses with Helen's own blood-torn life which took her, Paul, and Francis to Columbia, South Carolina, Helen's hometown, where she was later buried for almost a year. Helen had long returned to New Orleans, despite Paul's concern that crime and potential hurricanes made it too dangerous for their family. So Helen campaigned, sending Paul's friends in New Orleans blank postcards addressed to Paul for us to write and mail to him. In mine, I pleaded with Paul, we need you. The way I'd be with anyone who was thinking about leaving, coming to, or even just visiting New Orleans. In my car, I reminded him about my client, Ryan, who he had treated at no charge for a terrible seizure disorder that had gone unattended during Ryan's years of wrongful imprisonment. Ryan needs you. After what I'm sure was a flood of similar car cards, Paul relented. I saw Paul and the baby after the return to the city at a parade on the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Francis had on a little railroad conductor's hat, a t-shirt depicting a cartoon love affair between red beans and rice, and a little sign pinned to his back in Helen's pretty script, New Orleans native, I got back yesterday. The day of the anniversary was solemn but optimistic. People still clung to a can-do attitude. Paul, for one, could help make the city's people well and improve healthcare for the poor. Helen could make art depicting the city's life. Others could rebuild schools, demand better levies, reconstruct their homes. It still felt as if our grassroots efforts, along with some real help from government, finally forced to make up to, from a government finally forced to make good on its obligations, could make a more just, fair, and safe city. It may have been naive, but it really seemed possible. <clears throat> after wandering this beautiful, falling-over city, the afternoon after Helen's murder, forcing myself to remember why I love it here so much, I came back to my garden and picked flowers. Those hardy few that had weathered the recent cold. I put them in a vase, wrote out the verses to Edna St. Vincent Millay's Dirge Without Music. I am not resigned to the shutting away of loving hearts in the hard ground. So it is, and so it will be, for so it has been, time after mind. <clears throat> and drove to the couple's home, which my wife and I had recently visited during he for Helen's open studio. On steps leading up to their old shotgun house, I set down the poem, and I set down the poem in the, in the vase, just feet from where Paul had been found by police, shot, bleeding, holding his baby. 
On the way home, I stopped by a neighborhood bar to drink a beer and try to eat something. As I forced a, a bite of food down, a picture of Paul and Helen, followed by one of Francis, appeared on the television in the corner. Oh my God, I groaned. The bartender was kind. She asked me if I knew them and talked to me about her fears living with her new baby in a city with no functional schools, no real plan for redevelopment, and spottier, non-existent basic services. The TV news switched to a weather report. Torrential downpours were expected to dump a foot of rain overnight. I drove home in the twilight and arrived uneasy and restless. Remembering the coming rain, I resolved to make myself useful to my block by digging out a sewer so backed up that the street, on high ground by New Orleans standards, floods at even the hint of rain. I had done this many times before, having realized that my innumerable calls to the city were in vain. I pried up a 100-pound cast iron cover, cover with a shovel and then shimmied it from side to side until I had, had, had the two-by-four-foot sewer open. It was filled to the top with debris. I shoveled out the leaves, dirt, Popeye's cups, and other garbage until the small brick rectangle was as clean as it was a century ago when New Orleans first created this drainage system. Then I set to work on cleaning the cylindrical drain about as wide as a hubcap at the bottom corner of the cleared-out basin so that the rain could find its way into the city's sewers, away from our houses, cars, and belongings. I got down with a small shovel and burrowed through the muck until it seemed to open at the other side. Reaching in, though, I could feel that beyond the drain lay more leaves and dirt, packed hard. Indeed, it became clear to me that the whole sewer line running beneath the street was solid with waste, impenetrable to arms and shovels, that my street would flood again that night. The problem, I realized, is bigger than me. I know, but I do not approve, and I am not resigned. So earlier this week, New Orleans was the subject of a working day session. Uh, some of the members of this panel uh, participated, and we produced after uh, about three hours of uh, spirited conversation and debate um, a manifesto uh, with a number of recommendations and suggestions for projects that Penn could help support in New Orleans in the next year, uh, some more ambitious than others, the first of which addressed the fact that books are not allowed in prisons in New Orleans Parish, um, which would seem to be a Penn cause if ever there, there was one uh, to try to change that. And one of the statements in this uh, document, which I think will be posted online on the Penn uh, website on Monday, uh, was, and, and I think a number of people felt very strongly about this, uh, that whatever programs or, or projects that, that are in, instituted that Penn has, has a hand in, uh, it should not dwell excessively on Katrina. And I, I was struck uh, by the, um, the, the, how strongly people felt about that. And I, and I wondered if we could start uh, the conversation by perhaps expanding um, because in some ways it's counterintuitive, I think, to people who aren't uh, very familiar with the city and the struggles that have been going on in the last five and a half years. Uh, why, why not dwell on Katrina, or why not focus on, on what has happened since? Um, maybe Fatima, you could begin. Okay. Um, one of the reasons uh, that feeling was held so strongly was because uh, we were talking about children. And 
one of the things that we've been doing on the Children's Committee has been going down, we've been for five years, we've been going down and we've produced a little book with the kids uh, and teaching children how to write. So some of the things that we didn't want to, the children to keep uh, reliving this over and over and over. Not that they don't anyway, but that they had to find other metaphors for their experiences and so that they could sort of look toward the future and not keep looking on how they were victimized and, and what was wrong all the time. Um, so that, that was one reason. There was a school teacher there, actually, because she was in town from the Martin Luther King School, and she was very vocal about, about letting her kindergartners move forward, you know. Um, so uh, that was one of the reasons why, because we want the kids to be able to think about things like, uh, I want to be an astronaut, you know, if they have a space program, um, or I, I, I want to be something else, not just that I want to be a victim constantly on the highway somewhere. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, historians warn against uh, a phenomenon that they call recentism, which is the, the over-interpretation and the overtelling of events of the very recent past, because that, that, that's what we're predisposed to, that's what's up front and center. Uh, and if you, if you only focus on Katrina and you d detach it from its 300-year social backstory and its 100-year physical geographical backstory that, 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 that incurs a certain danger. If you look at the history of uh, disasters in New Orleans, uh, the city burned down literally, literally to a degree to, of 80% in 1788, again in eight, uh, 1794. It flooded uh, disastrously, if not catastrophically, in 1816, 49, and 71. And one out of every 10 New Orleanians died in the 1853 yellow fever epidemic, and that was one of many. Uh, so when you take that longer view, uh, you start to see Katrina as in, in a larger context, and um, so the argument of, of uh, I hate to use the term moving on, uh, but the, the, there is a sense that, that we have a, a greater challenges now and five and a half years have passed. And th there has been this, uh, and this is something that also that we, we spoke about the other day, since in the last five and a half years there's been uh, an impulse to talk about New Orleans as a metaphor. And in a lot of the writing that's been done about New Orleans, it's come to represent something much bigger than the city itself, and, it, and in, in fact, crucial aspects of American life. And is this, you know, I understand this is this is necessary. I think, or has has been helpful to draw attention to the city and to the part of, of what's actually going on. But is is there something negative about this too? I mean, do we lose sight of of, of real real problems that that the city is facing, of which there are. Legion. Well, uh, <clears throat> one of the animating ideas um, of, of, of this book, my book, and of the writing opinion that I've been doing since Katrina, it's just that you could, you, New Orleans was a city desperate in need of assistance well before Hurricane Katrina, um, as are many other places in America. So I wouldn't reduce New Orleans to a metaphor, but to me, I think it's important, uh, you know, it, it, and I think Richard's point about exceptionalist is, is well taken. Um, and I think there are these people who, who view New Orleans as this exceptional place, and many of them are the city's biggest fans. But I, I've, I've continuously um, argued that um, rather than being exceptional, Amer that, that America ought to be concerned with New Orleans because it's highly representative of the problems of the rest of the country. So a lot of metaphors, you know, you could look at any of the social crises in New Orleans and find in them a magnification of the issues that exist 
um, in every other American community. Um, you know, when I when people ask me, well, why should I care about New Orleans? My response has never been, um, you know, the kind of response that we see we frequently hear. You know, that well, there's Mardi Gras Indians and there's gumbo. Um, those <laughs> many of those are the reasons why I live in New Orleans, but those are not the reason. Um, reasons why I think other people should care about New Orleans. My feeling has always been that people in New York or anywhere should, should care about New Orleans because if they got into their car and, and drove to the neighborhood nearest to them <clears throat> where the schools were failing, where there weren't hospitals, where there were no grocery stores, um, where, there, where there were all of these issues that exist in New Orleans, they would essentially find what people were concerned about, about following Hurricane Katrina. Um, that, and, that, and that furthermore, that the, that the sort of nightmare that shocked um, people after Hurricane Katrina was, was mass poverty of people without possibility or options. And, and that in that regard, New Orleans is entirely unexceptional, um, sadly. Um, and that to the extent that New Orleans addresses these issues that it struggled with for decades, if not centuries, um, to the extent that we fail to address them, you know, that these issues are coming to a neighborhood near you. They already are there, but they're only going to get worse. So while not a metaphor, I think it's important for, um, for people to realize that you know, it's not like we have these New, these New Orleans problems. We have this New Orleans problem with our public school system. We have this New Orleans problem with crime. We have this American problem that's, that's, in, that's tragically uh, magnified in the city of New Orleans. And Sarah, I wonder if you could sort of expand on that because you've written about um, New Orleans and, and from a very personal perspective. And I wonder, and this is also true for Nicholas Lemon, you know, have, how, what kind of challenges have you found in writing about the city recently? In, uh, you know, what what kinds of uh, cliches have you had to confront in your writing, and and, and how do you? handle that when you're writing about the city to, for people who aren't from there and, and don't know the neighborhoods? Mm -hmm. I think that's a good question. I mean, I, I think all of the cliches, right, which is to say, for me what has been most interesting is to think about New Orleans uh, as a kind of outsider uh, from within the city. And so I think the tendency is to think about New Orleans in all the ways we love and to think about New Orleans in all the ways that are portrayed in the media and in the newspaper. And, and I think part of the challenge is to actually talk about real people who understand New Orleans from a very different perspective. And so for me, I think what Katrina did was it made lots of the people I know who I grew up with in New Orleans East, it forced them to become world citizens, which is to say, they suddenly had to be really concerned about their own lives, their own futures, their children's futures. You know, it wasn't just about their job in the French Quarter or second lining, you know, on uh, St. Joseph's Day. So I think all of these cliches, you know, they actually have to be moved out of the way because I think to make way for individual human stories um, that really abound. Mm -hmm. Would, would you also talk about, I mean, in the piece you wrote uh, for the New York Review, I mean, there's one uh, passage that, that really struck me about um, fears within the city and, and sort of biases within the city between different populations and, um, you know, fear of, of sort of conspiratorial uh, 
goings-on, especially in the white uh, part of the city, about um, decisions made, you know, what to do with these, the population after the storm and, and different neighborhoods? <laughs> Boy, that's a tough one to handle uh, quickly. Um, <laughs> first of all, I... I um, I don't write about New Orleans very much, though I am a, a, a native New Orleanian, um, because uh, it. This is just sort of personally me as a writer. I, I find it um, gets to cut very deep very quickly and get to very uh, disturbing material, uh, such as a little bit of what I read. Um, and and just again, this is not about the city; it's about me. It, it's I find it very hard to. I don't want to sound like it's an easy escape, but I have two, three hundred relatives in New Orleans, um, and uh, I would. It, there's a real conflict between being honest and maintaining relations I cherish with all my friends and relatives <laughs> there. Um, so I, I mostly write about other things. In, in response to your question, um, it, it's. Um, Well, it, it's complicated, but but you know the the first cut is race is a huge issue in New Orleans, and and uh, and always has been, um, and there's a you know black conversation about whites that whites are not very much privy to. There's a white conversation about blacks that blacks are not very privy to. Um, both conversations are um, a lot less polite than the public conversation and in ways that are not very pleasant to hear. Um, on the question you asked specifically, uh, you know, the, the, the fabled white elite that controls everything in New Orleans, I, I guess what I would say about them is, um, it's, it's, and this explains some of the very bad condition of New Orleans on all social measurements, the white elite of New Orleans is probably the least powerful white elite of any uh, country, big, big city in the country. Uh, not because somebody took their power away, but for various cultural reasons. Um, New Orleans has virtually no locally controlled major economic institutions. Um, and and um, there's... Uh, <laughs> So the, the infamous New Orleans white elite does not have the inclination to do what most people in this room would want done in New Orleans, and if it had the inclination, it wouldn't be able to do them. Um, so this is not to uh, let them off the hook, but to say that that's not a good place to look uh, if one wants good things to happen in New Orleans. And since, uh, in, in the last few years, one of the narratives about the city has been that you know, as in the wake of many disasters, it creates a lot of opportunity. And in the space that's been left, uh, the void in, in much of the city, that people are now, especially, I've noticed just anecdotally, um, I just moved down there uh, in September, and, you know, speaking to uh, people when I was looking for an apartment, uh, I, const I kept being told that, well, um, you know, not, there wasn't, that in the last year or two there's been a huge influx of people, but that that, that didn't happen for a, f a few years. So that there was a kind of, um, 
you know, people moved back originally, immediately, but then a lot of people didn't move back. But now there's a kind of new population coming in, and I wondered, is, is that something that, you know, at least if the people who live there now are aware of, do you feel like the opportunity, uh, opportunities have been seized? I mean, of course, there are many examples where it hasn't been, um, but, but is there some hope that, that as the population changes, that it might change in helpful ways, or good, you know, that, that is attracting new people that it might not have attract, attracted before? Yeah, um, many of you probably know that New Orleans had the highest nativity rate of any major American city in the 2000 census. About 77, 78% of New Orleanians were born in in-state, in Louisiana. Uh, and uh, that, that cuts in both directions. The positive element of that statistic is that there's a strong love of place and dedication to place. The other way to read that statistic is that this place struggled to attract outsiders, uh, to, to, to attract newcomers. And ironically, after Katrina, with a tremendous loss of uh, population, and by the way, for reasons I could go into on the side, native-born New Orleanians were hit worse by the flood than transplants. Um, there has since been a very difficult to measure but very prominent so-called brain gain of, um, of young, uh, educated professionals, oftentimes in the design, planning, urbanist professions, 20-something, some in their 30s, that have moved to uh, New Orleans and um, uh, have been quite outspoken. They're highly civic, civically engaged, so they, they tend to be even more prominent than their, their numbers. The numbers are probably in the two to three thousand range, maybe four thousand. Uh, and it's my sense that the, the, the native population has been rather welcoming to this population and uh, sees them, you know, this is a troubled city that, 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 that uh, needs this new injection of enthusiasm and youth. And uh, my general sense is that they've been, uh, that they have not been viewed as a threat, that they've been welcomed. Yeah. And can I add that, you know, I think this uh, love of place uh, that people expressed also was people were stuck in lots right. of ways. There were very few opportunities for advancement. It's nearly impossible for a highly educated person to move back to New Orleans and find some kind of intellectual rigor. I mean, that's just the truth. So I think part of it is that now Katrina forced lots of people from New Orleans. They were forced from New Orleans, and now they don't want to come back. That's true. So this population of people who aren't coming back because they can't afford to are also made up of people who don't actually want to return, right? Um, so yeah, and can you yeah. also maybe ex ex Yes, uh, well, as, a, as an old-time New Orleanian, um, I think that they are the, the people who are being welcomed quite a bit, some of the people that are coming in and volunteering and helping out. But I think for uh, one of the statistics is that 118,000 blacks left. The city shrank by one-third, and the black population shrank by more than that, right? So I think there is, uh, when you talk about that racial... I'm, I'm a representative of that, okay? Um, the, uh, that there is, there is always that question about, okay, there are new nonprofits coming in, there are people that are going to help, but who do they help and where does the money actually go? You know, so I think there's that sort of uh, question always out there. Where is, where is all this help and all these opportunities? Who are they going to benefit? So I think that's always there. Yeah, I wanted also, Sarah, I mean, I your, some of your family, I mean, a lot of your family left, and, and some of them have, haven't returned. And it, I, I feel like I remember you saying at one point that 
they, and tell me if this is a total mischaracterization, but that there are people who would have said they love the city, and yet once they're outside of it, they, they the, their relationship has changed quite dramatically, and they, there's ambivalence about going back. Yes, I mean, I think it's, a it's an issue of personality. For instance, my fisherman brother, Carl, you know, he's never going to leave Louisiana. The storm came, he stayed on his roof, you know, even when he was trying to move away, he was still in the state of Louisiana. He's just never going to leave. But there are others who found themselves in California, for instance, or they found themselves in Texas, or even Mississippi or Alabama, and they suddenly discovered that there was a completely different life outside of New Orleans, that you could make more money, that you could actually uh, advance in your job, you know, uh, for instance. So I think, yes, I think that it's a matter of personality, and the truth is, you know, when I write in this piece that I left New Orleans, I left New Orleans because it just felt tiny. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, sorry, were you going to say something? No. I was going to say uh, my own firstborn child is one of that category that we're talking about because he moved to New Orleans to work for a nonprofit for a few years and just recently came back here. And, and he was welcomed, and it, it is a little culture of people. Yeah. And but but did he leave because he felt that there was not? This is the same story Sarah just said. It's, it's just you know I don't know if this is a public policy issue or not, but it's just that that real trade off that everybody from New Orleans uh, is familiar with. Of you know you can stay in the place you love and sacrifice some of your dreams, or you can yeah. leave the place you love and try to achieve some of your dreams. And and. Um, it's, it's pretty stark. Yeah. And the, the question, I mean, and also, uh, Richard Campanello, you've been studying the census, and, and there more things are coming out, it's sort of leaking out, right? And have you been struck by any, I mean, one thing that I know is new is that there's a, a Latino population that really didn't exist for the most part. And it was much smaller, yeah. and it's definitely much bigger now, difficult to measure, even in the census. Uh, the basic uh, demographics, uh, the city was 484, now the city proper, Orleans Parish, I'm not talking about the Tri-Paris metro area, 484,000 in the 2000 census, about 455,000 a month before Katrina. Uh, as of April of 2010, the number is 343,000, so that's 71 to 75 percent fewer people than either the 2000 or 2005. The composition uh, in terms of race and ethnicity, in 2000 it was 67% African American, now it's 60. White has gone from 28 to 33. Hispanic has, has gone up probably uh, three to five, but it might actually be higher than that. And then those of Asian ancestry, around two to three percent. In terms of, of natives, that statistic has not been uh, released yet, but I, I cannot be believe that it would have gone up. From 77, 78%, I'm guessing, at most, it's going to be in the low 70s uh, for reasons. I just Let me just go back, briefly explain why natives were more likely to be flooded. There's a 100-year demographic geography that explains that. The city was on higher ground 100 years ago. Almost 99 to 100% of the population would have been in those higher areas closest to the river. The drainage system uh, that Billy alluded to was installed in the Progressive Era, and that uh, drained the back swamp and allowed uh, the, uh, a middle class, mostly white population, 
to sort of, as I describe it, leapfrog over the predominantly African-American back of town and settle in these very low-lying areas, which were perceived to be uh, free from flood threats, even as they started subsiding because we removed the water component from the soils. So who was it that moved to these 20th century sur suburban? It tended to be people with deep native roots here. Uh, come to the early 21st century, people like myself, I'm originally from Brooklyn, uh, I moved to the region 20 years ago and to the city 11 years ago. Why do you move to New Orleans? Well, one of the reasons is to live in a neat old house in a neat old neighborhood. Where are the old neighborhoods? They're on higher ground. So transplants tend to predominate in that higher ground area and natives tended to predominate in the lower ground, ironically. So when the flood cut came in, those lower ground areas were hit harder and therefore uh, natives are more likely to be displaced. Add to this the economic factor that poorer people were more likely to be displaced, they were more likely to be native, and who's coming in, it's by definition transplants. So that nativity rate will almost certainly go down markedly. And just, I mean, one, before we, we talk about the role of the, the writer, which I want to get to, uh, there are a couple of quotes that, uh, speaking of poverty, from Billy Southern's book that stood out to me. Uh, the first is when watching uh, the television after Katrina, each time I heard someone exclaim that in shock at the city's resemblance to a third world country, I needed to respond that the city had long displayed such signs to anyone who cared to look at them. And also, I've never been to a city in the United States whose life and character were so defined by the struggle of its poorest citizens. Is, is this struggle something that's being lost, do you feel? I mean, in, in five and a half years later, uh, it seems these problems of, of poverty are as, as bad and also as connected to ev the other pro problems within the city as ever. Um, and it, through your work and, and, and your observations, have you felt like this is changing at all, or has it just become uh, you know, digging in further, more entrenched? <clears throat> my, my work as a lawyer is so individual, and in, so, but in the, in the people who become my clients are are the people at the bottom? You know, there's, you know, there are the, there are the kids who are arrested for armed robbery, and then there's the kids who are arrested for triple murder. Um, you know, like the, the kids who are arrested for armed robbery. That's in one, one one group of kids. Like the kids who are arrested who become capital people sentenced to death in Louisiana are are just from the the, the lowest bottom um, rung of society, um, and are consistently the people who have the least access to everything all along, which is always a cruel irony for me. Like, I'm your government-funded government lawyer, and, and I'm here to help you um, at this late juncture in the game. Um, you know, I apologize that no, no government funds were expended on your family in advance of this, but I promise you I'm going to do a very good job. Um, so the, the people who I see, I, it's hard for me to know whether the, the class of people from which they come is any greater, but the the instances of like extreme unimaginable poverty that has been unchecked by any of the social nets that we would hope exist in our country um, that's that's as there today as it was um, ten years ago, and I think in many ways it's worse yeah. as reflected by our um, you know if if the murder rate is a barometer of some other um, cultural values. You know, Louisiana, I, I, I think this is a statistic that bears repeating, but um, what I, I alluded to, I think it was 160 murders um, 
in, in, in 06 or 07. Um, the bottom line is that New Orleans has about 60 murders per 100,000 residents. And as a, as a New York native, you know, the bad old days where, you know, it was, it was scary to walk down the streets in New York City, the, the murder rate was 19 murders per um, 100,000 residents. And now New York, I think, has a murder rate of, I think, between six and seven per 100,000 residents. So your chances of, of being murdered on the street in New Orleans, just statistically, would be about 1,000% greater um, in New Orleans. And I think that that reflects um, a lot of other social realities that have nothing to do with, you know, policing, um, that in fact have to do, have, are reflective of a, of a continued and, um, and incredibly disconcerting uh, crisis, in not just in poverty, but in providing the, the goods to, to folks who are in that situation who otherwise have very few other options. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'll just say something. <laughs> the, um, the, one of the things about the social net is that the social net in New Orleans traditionally has been family. It has not been that we had jobs with, that were making a lot of money uh, to, to help each other out, right? Nor was it that uh, the government was helping people out a lot. Most people helped out each other. So it sort of operated not without money even as, not, not to say it's not an issue, but that money was sort of not in that equation. You know, people just did what they did, and if somebody needed money, you gave them a little bit of money, or you took them in, or you took their relatives in, or you watched their children, or you took care of their grandmother, or something like that. So that sort of exchange was going on. Um, what Katrina did was break up these families. You had people who would help each other that, that now were not around, and who were all going through the same crisis at the same time. So where they may have helped a grandmother or something, everybody had to take care of their grandmother. Everybody had to simultaneously take care of their children, build their house and all that thing. So if you see crime increasing, that may be one, one of the things that uh, people don't have any net at all, not family net or anything like that to help them out. And so what's, what's the responsibility of a writer in New Orleans or a writer writing about New Orleans? I mean, does, is there a role, I mean, when, when faced with these enormous, uh, seemingly intransigent problems uh, that have been, that you can trace back centuries in the city, uh, where does the writer fit in? It's a city with an extremely rich literary history and, and many writers have lived and worked there. Um, but is there, is there something sort of archaic about the idea of a writer coming in and, and bringing about some kind of change, or, or is there something, uh, is there some mission that, that writers should have about the city? <laughs> okay. Please. I think that, well, I think that writers after Katrina were thrust into the roles of sociologists and, and economists and, and all sorts of other roles. Uh, so I think that they do have a responsibility in some sense. Well, people like me are, who are from there, we're going to write about New Orleans, right? Um, but I think that, uh, I think one of the things that writers who are not from New Orleans can do, or people who are coming to New Orleans in terms of writing, is to write across the cultures and to write accurately. I think Nick uh, mentioned that, uh, that people don't have a conversation across cultures, right? I think writers can provide a conversation across cultures. Uh, for this, this is one of the reasons why we were sending writers from New York down to New Orleans to talk to kids who lived in the Lower Ninth Ward. 
so that they could see writers, that they could see that these people were their friends, you know, not that they had to stay in their culture and the others did. So I think writing across cultures uh, and meeting each other and, ac and being accurate about the things that we write about each other, I think would be beneficial. I'm probably the only person in the room who doesn't really think of himself as a writer. Uh, I'm, I'm a geographer. I research, map, characterize, and try to explain spatial patterns between, and spatial relationships between humans and their environment. So I'll, I'll kind of address it from that perspective. Uh, the one I would say to avoid what we talked about earlier, that temptation of recentism, of detaching the present from the backstory. Uh, the second is to avoid the temptation to invert reality by over-reporting the exception and under-reporting under the, 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 the trend or the rule. You see this in countless early 19th century travelogues as writers came down and they observed the society and you have all sorts of reports about uh, the, 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 the drunken flatboatmen and the prostitutes and, and the things that deviated. What you don't have is how everyday people lived out their everyday lives. And so I, I think to, to avoid inverting that reality by bringing too much attention to the, the things that are really st statistically on the fringe. The final and most important to a geographer is don't sugarcoat. Uh, we have, we have a, a real environmental crisis here of, uh, that is really the, the Katrina backstory that made those levees uh, increasingly likely to fail. And that is uh, eroding coasts, sinking soils, and rising seas. Uh, and quite frankly, it, it, uh, it looks pretty bleak. Um, I wondered if you could speak a little more about the, I mean, you, you grew up in a generation in New Orleans where you had a bunch of friends who became writers. And it, do, you, do you, I guess speaking for, for, for them as well, do you consider yourselves in any way a New Orleans writers, or are you writers who happen to be from the city? I think there's a difference between fiction and nonfiction. Um, most uh, fiction writers that I know from New Orleans uh, tend to write about New Orleans, um, including uh, in that number my sister and my stepmother, who are both uh, New Orleans novelists. And most nonfiction writers in my cohort of people that I grew up with have uh, um, kind of, you know, turn the spotlight outward, uh, left, and write about other things, and think of themselves as New Orleanians who don't write about New Orleans for, for whatever that's worth. Um, on your earlier question, I, I, I think um, perhaps the only good thing to come out of Katrina is, you know, there, there's kind of the, uh, what in the rest of the South is called the Moonlight and Magnolias, School of Southern Writing, um, where everything gets sort of romanticized and, and, and exoticized. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that characterizes historically a lot of writing about New Orleans by uh, New Orleanians and by expat, well, I guess, what would you call them? Uh, people from elsewhere who come to New Orleans because they think of it as a wonderfully exotic place that uh, uh, represents a sort of attractive alternative to American values. Um, I think uh, Katrina sort of popped that bubble and, and, and created I, uh, what I hope is a new tradition of much more raw and honest writing about New Orleans as it really is. So, so um, if, if that continues, I think that's, that's a healthy new role for writers. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me in fiction it presents 
a very difficult uh, project because in the same way that you know you saw this spate of 9/11 novels um, that con that continue to be published, and w when you have any kind of crisis or disaster or an iconic place or both combined, you have cliches and you have patterns that are familiar and. There's a kind of, I mean, as, as Fatima said, there's a kind of sociological imperative, which I wonder if, if that goes in sort of direct, directly against um, the creative imperative. You know, to, to say something new and to write about something new uh, or write about something familiar in a new way, uh, something like Katrina puts, puts up all these obstacles towards that. And, I, you know, is that something that I mean, perhaps that also exists with nonfiction and memoir. Um, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, you think of someone like Walker Percy, you know, he's not writing about New Orleans, he's writing about, you know, being a, being a human being, you know, his characters are on a search for truth. They're on a search for truth at Lakeview, you know, they're, they're on a search <laughs> for truth when they're at the Britannia movie theater, you know, but, and I think, I think the same is, there. You know, there's obvious things that there are obligations on writers who are writing about New Orleans. The most obvious to me is that there's certain metaphors that are off the table, like yeah, like a gumbo, like like a gumbo. You know, <laughs> only thing that should be like a gumbo is gumbo, <laughs> which is a you know complicated dish that has many meanings <laughs> to many different people. Um, Synonyms for flood, uh, yeah. deluge, and that those get people can get carried away. Yeah, I, th I think that, so there are things like that, and, um, and, but, and I think that feeds into the sort of um, the temptation that Richard's talking about, about the, the, the exceptionalism, this attitude of, um, you know, that this is a one-of-a-kind place, which it is. I think that's the hard thing. That my favorite thing that anyone said about my book is that, you know, uh, that, that this book, you know, it, it, um, it, it made me understand more than, more than anything else why it's important to save uh, New Orleans, uh, or no, why, why, the, why what happened in New Orleans was, was worse than, than I'd ever imagined, and that I should move there um, immediately. And I think that that's the sort of the tension there, is that, you know, I have a, a home and a, and, a, and a family in New Orleans, I have a child who I hope to send to a school, and I hear, and I, and I constantly tell other young families, you know, oh, you should move to New Orleans, it's great, we have all these assets, and yet my wife and I have a regular conversation like, was that a gunshot or was that fireworks? Yeah. Um, you know, and that's just a normal way of, of living um, in this amazing city that everyone should move to right now. Um, so I think that it, it's sort of holding on to that that sort of conflict of because um, obviously it, it would be a difficult city to live in um, if you weren't enthusiastic about it. So I think that in some ways the that sort of drumbeat is. Um, it's understandable because it's it's hard to live there. Um, at the same time, I feel like it it, it it ends up lending itself to this sort of um, oversimplified analysis of the city that actually excludes not just cultural uh, and racial communities and groups, but also other interesting arts groups, other interesting cultures there. Like there's a really amazing heavy metal and rock and roll scene in New Orleans. Like whoever you know who. who what, what are you talking about? I thought everyone plays a tuba, you know, everyone's walking down the street with a trumpet. So I think that those sort of overgeneralized ideas of New Orleans, um, that that's one of the things that in, in general um, that, that writers need to either resist or correct 
um, in, the, in the sort of cultural uh, narrative of the world, and then at the same time to sort of highlight these 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 issues of national significance because we do have an opportunity in New Orleans because the, the national media remains interested in New Orleans stories. I think um, the story that came out of um, Gina, Louisiana, um, about the about the nooses um, um, is. And that's far away from New Orleans, but I think part of the reason why I was able to gain traction is because there were a group of writers in southern Louisiana who were concerned about racial justice issues and who were used to pushing stories like that because they, they gathered this experience in doing that. And I think um, because there's so many sort of representative issues in, in South Louisiana and in New Orleans, whether you're talking about the BP spill or, or, or so many other issues that, that deserve national attention, um, you know, to me, that's part of the of the mandate, at least from people who are writing on the sort of nonfiction end of things. Yeah, I, wanted, I just wanted to say that um, I think the the role of the writer in New Orleans is not different from the role of the writer anywhere on the planet, um, and that's perhaps the difficulty in work that actually comes out of New Orleans. Um, it has so much to do with exceptionalism that's never quite explored or figured out. And um, thinking of New Orleans as a place that has a psychology unto itself um, really interests me. And I think if you think about what makes a place what it is, um, that's an interesting pursuit in my view. And so I think uh, writers have to tell the truth and write. Right? So I mean, it can't get any bigger than that. Yeah, I mean, perhaps a place that where there's so much cliche and there's so much fantasy constructed about it uh, gives writers a greater opportunity because uh, to tell truth you know, and go against the, the, the cliches and um, surprise the reader.